to that uh, this morning. Now, let's talk about Palm Sunday. And I'm going to jump straight into it, uh, looking at the time that we have and the, what else is left in the service. One of the things that strikes me about Palm Sunday and uh, the triumphal entry of the Lord, which is the title used in your Bibles often, is the willingness of the Lord Jesus to go into the lion's den, so to speak. To go into the lion's den. His willingness to walk into danger, to put his life on the line for his people. And that's really the significance of this. And I'll come back to this point uh, as we go through the message and, and particularly towards the end. But just really, I was thinking about what is so spectacular about Palm Sunday. It is the willingness of the Lord Jesus to put his life on the line for us. And we'll touch on that. Now, the text before us is Mark 11, uh, 1 to 11. And of course, there's parallel passages in, uh, in all of the other gospels that you can read about that speak of the end the, you know, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. But before we get into the details of this, what I thought would be helpful is to have a quick overview of the events of Holy Week or Passion Week, right? It's just so you know in terms of a timeline, what are the key things that happen? And so I've got a chart up for you and you can have a quick look at it. Uh, I hope you can read it. And we're going to go back to Friday, Saturday, just before today. And on Friday, Saturday, you have, you know, the Lord Jesus arriving into Bethany and he goes and spends time with uh, his friends, Lazarus, who's now raised from the dead, and Mary and Martha, his, the sisters. And Mary anoints uh, Jesus with this expensive ointment. And Jesus says that it is, she is preparing him for his death. And so he's already, he, he knows what's coming, right? And he's informing his disciples in a way of what is coming. And then you come to Palm Sunday, which is this morning. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds lay palm leaves and their cloaks on the road before him celebrating his arrival. And he teaches the crowds. He has some conversations with the crowds. And uh, John talks about this in John 12. He enters the temple briefly and then he returns to Bethany. Monday morning, Jesus returns from Bethany to Jerusalem and on his way he sees a fig tree, a fruitless fig tree. And that fig tree is symbolic of a fruitless people, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. Uh, they were not bearing fruit in keeping with their faith in God, so to speak. And so Jesus curses this tree. And then he goes back into Jerusalem and he clears the temple of all of the sellers and all of the people that were using it as a marketplace. And then he returns to Bethany. Uh, on uh, right. Then on Tuesday, the disciples are back on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus and they're amazed at the fig tree which is now withered. Important symbols in this whole thing. When Jesus gets to the temple, the leaders, the religious leaders confront him. They say, what do you think you're doing in this place, right? It's a strong confrontation with Jesus. Jesus then withdraws from there, goes to the Mount of Olives and you have the Olivet Discourse. He, he has his, this teaching uh, to his disciples. On Wednesday, the Lord returns to Jerusalem and he continues teaching in the temple while the Sanhedrin, the highest religious body, plot to kill Jesus. Judas agrees to betray Jesus on Wednesday. And then there is a preparation for the Passover. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. 
And he washes the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, we read of that. And then late in the evening, they go off into the garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, and they begin to, and he begins to pray over there. On Friday, so this is really early Friday, so late Thursday, early Friday, midnight, somewhere around then, the religious leaders come, and the, 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 the temple guards come, and they arrest Jesus. And then very quickly, he is tried before the religious leaders. He's sent to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. All of this takes place before nine in the morning. Imagine that. What a sham of a trial. How quickly it happens. That's not quick justice. That's injustice. At 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified. And for six hours, he's on the cross until 3 in the afternoon before he was buried in the tomb. Saturday, all quiet. That's my favorite slide, actually. All quiet. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And then on Sunday, you have the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the witness of the women who tell the disciples, he's risen. And the angelic announcement and Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. These are the events of Resurrection Sunday. Now, you don't have to write this all down. I'll actually send you uh, a link to, sorry, you wrote it all down, but to the ESV, which gives you the texts that go with all of these events. All right, so you'll get it in your message uh, this afternoon. I think it's really helpful as you meditate through this week on the events of Passion Week. But it's good for us uh, to consider now, the big question that I want to deal with or address this morning is about Palm Sunday. What is the importance or the significance of Palm Sunday or the events of Palm Sunday? What's the significance of it? What's the importance of it? Now, to understand the importance of Palm Sunday, it wasn't just waving leaves and Jesus riding in on a donkey. There was much more going on uh, in these events. To understand it, it's helpful to look at Go back a little bit and look at how Jesus normally operated. What was his modus operandi, so to speak? What was his normal way of doing ministry up to that point? Because the events of Palm Sunday constitute a major break from his usual way of operating. Until this point, Jesus has avoided grand public proclamations and announcements of who he is. He did that once in the beginning of his ministry in Galilee when he read from the scroll. But otherwise, he's avoided grand public proclamations and announcements of who he is. In fact, several times through the Gospels, you'll remember this, and you probably scratched your head and wondered, why does Jesus do this? But several times through the Gospels, people will heal, uh, Jesus will heal people, and then he will say to them, don't tell anybody about it. That's strange, isn't it? Why does he do that? I mean, you think... He'd say, go tell everybody, let them all come to me. But he says, don't tell anybody about it. In fact, in Matthew 8, 4, I'll give you a few references. When Jesus heals the leper, he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Or in Matthew 9, 30, we read of the two blind men who were healed. And Jesus sternly warned them, it says, see that no one knows about it. That's, that's interesting. In Mark 5.43, he raised the official's daughter, Talitha Kumi. Remember that, that little phrase, and she comes back to life. And it says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. 
In John chapter 2, when Mary, his mother, asked him to do something about the shortage of the wine, Jesus said to her in John 2, 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now that phrase, my hour has not yet come, or, or that discussion around this hour is something that John, in his gospel, mentions several times. And I've put down a couple other references for you over there that you can look up, where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. But then on Palm Sunday, things change. They change. Jesus enters Jerusalem. And in John chapter 12, some of these Greeks and other people come to him and they begin to have this conversation with him. And in John 12, 23 to 24, Jesus says this. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he, des he describes what he means by that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of his death over here. And he says, the hour has now come for my death. For me to go to the cross. What changed? Why has the hour now come? Well... The triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem hastened the hour of his supreme sacrifice on the cross. His entrance into Jerusalem and the way it took place. The Lord Jesus, you know, for three years of his ministry was careful not to draw, you know, um, undue attention to himself to the extent that it would hasten his arrest and his death. He was careful to not allow that to happen. That's why he says, don't tell anybody. Because what he wanted to do was to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He wanted to have opportunity to do that. But more significantly, I think, he wanted the time to prepare his disciples. These 12, now 11 men who would literally turn the world upside down. Jesus spent most of his time with them. And all of the things that were concealed from the world, Jesus openly spoke to them. He told them of who he was. He told them of the purpose of his coming. And even though they, they couldn't fully grasp it, Jesus told them time and again. He revealed the parables to them because he was preparing his disciples. And he needed that time. Actually, they needed that time with him. They needed that time with him. And so Jesus took those three years to do that. But now the time had come. He knew that his time has come. And he knew fully well that if he entered Jerusalem as he did, that would be it. And so back to the question, what's the importance of Palm Sunday? What's the significance of the events of Palm Sunday? Well, let me give you uh, three observations that I have very quickly, all right? Number one, Jesus knowingly announces himself as the king. He knowingly announces himself as the king. Know when I say knowingly, I mean that he, he publicly did it. He intentionally did it in this way. 
he rode into Jerusalem on this young donkey as the king. When you read the gospel accounts, and that was, you know, what was read for us from Mark 11, you will see how Jesus intentionally prepares for this entrance into Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, go to this nearby village and you will find a young donkey, the colt of a donkey. You know, find that donkey, bring that donkey to me. A donkey that had never been ridden on. And so they do that. And he rides on that donkey as they lay their cloaks before him and all of these leaves before him. Jesus intentionally plans what is about to happen. And John records the events for us with these words, right? It's a, and it's not just these events, it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, which is so important, right? Here's what it says in John 12, 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, what? Your king, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quote from Zechariah 9.9, which if you were a Jewish person, and particularly if you were a religious leader in Israel, you would immediately get the significance of that. Zechariah 9.9. And Jesus was applying this prophecy to himself. And it wasn't just that this person is riding into Jerusalem. It says, behold what? Your king is coming to you. What a proclamation. What a proclamation. The much, the long-awaited Messiah. No wonder the crowds around him were laying down their cloaks before him and spreading those leaves before him. And what were they singing? They were singing, and it says in Mark 11, it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That's a song celebrating the arrival of the Messiah. The, the son of David was a messianic title that Jesus was applying to himself by riding in on that donkey. In fact, Psalm 118 that Faithlin had read for us is, is related to this. It's the same words, Hosanna in the highest. And over here in Psalm 118, it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Because Hosanna means save us. That's what they're singing. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't silence the crowds. He doesn't silence the crowds. He doesn't attempt to correct them. Later on in Acts, when the, when the people come and they start worshipping Peter and John, Peter and John stop them and say, no, no, we are not God. When they do the same thing with Paul and Silas, Paul and Silas stop them and say, no, 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 we are not God. There is a God in heaven, but not Jesus. He doesn't stop them. Because what they were shouting and celebrating was true. He was, in fact, the Messiah who was coming. And the crowds were singing this of the Lord. And so Jesus knowingly and, and, and announces himself as the king, or intentionally maybe, that's another way to say it, intentionally announces himself as the king, the Messiah who is to come. Secondly, second observation, Jesus boldly, or I'll give you a moment to just refocus. I know handsome guys just walked in, right? They just look so good, man. All right, we're done? 
Here we are. Jesus boldly challenges the religious establishment. He boldly challenges the religious establishment. The actions of the Lord Jesus, if you think about it, were of a most provocative nature, so to speak. He was entering into the very heart of the religious establishment. Jerusalem was right at the center of the life and the culture and the faith of the people of Israel. Right at the center of it. And for a lot of his ministry, Jesus spent time outside of Jerusalem. In Galilee, he made a couple of trips down, but a lot of his ministry was outside. But here he was entering into the very heart of the religious establishment. And it was a big and bold statement that he was making. In fact, when the people were shouting Hosanna to the son of David, the Pharisees in Luke chapter 19 verse Verse 39 and 40, they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from saying what they're saying. We know what they're saying. You stop them from saying what they're saying. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would bear witness to who I am. I'm not going to stop them. Because the very stones would bear witness to who I am. Now, if you come to Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel puts the account of the clearing of the temple, of the sellers and the businessmen. He puts it together with Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem because he wants to highlight how Jesus is challenging the religious establishment. And so Jesus enters the temple, he clears it, and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it, what? A den of robbers. Whew. That's got to hit those people, isn't it? Who are you calling robbers? You're calling us thieves? We are the ones who manage the temple over here. Jesus walks in and he says, you're a den of robbers. Clear out. Because this is my house and this is God's house. And it is a house of prayer. That's provocation 101, isn't it? You go straight to the heart of it and you challenge that establishment and Jesus knows it. In fact, it infuriated the religious leaders so much that the Sanhedrin, the highest religious body, urgently sought to kill Jesus. Urgently. They were thinking about it all this time, but finally they said, you know what, guys? Enough is enough. We've got to end his life right now. Look at how the world is going after him. That's what they said. And it brings us to our third and final point, which is really, you know, a summary in that sense of the, of the other two. Number three, Jesus willingly hastens the hour of his ultimate sacrifice. He willingly hastens the hour of his ultimate sacrifice. You see, the reason why Jesus did these things was to bring about his sacrificial death on our behalf. In Acts, you know, when the disciples are praying, uh, and uh, they, they pray like this about the events of, of Holy Week and, and Christ's passion or Christ's death, this is what they pray, Acts 4, 27 and 28. They, they pray this, they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were gathered to do what God had purposed was to happen. And on Palm Sunday, and I read this to you before, John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of his death. He knows what's about to come. And the point that I'm making over here is that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem wasn't an oops moment in God's plan. He didn't enter and say, oh man, what have I done? No, no. It was, he did it intentionally to hasten Good Friday. Intentionally. In fact, go back to John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking and he says in John chapter 10, 17 and 18, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one takes it from me. But when I'm ready to give it up, I will give it up. And that's why he enters into Jerusalem in this way. To hasten Good Friday. To bring it quickly so that he can accomplish our salvation. That's the significance of Palm Sunday. Jesus, and to, use, to say it in this way, he used the most provocative way to go into Jerusalem, to challenge the political authorities by saying, I'm the king, to challenge the religious authorities by saying, you're making my father's house a den of robbers. He goes right into the den of lions, so to speak. And what does it result in? The hastening of his death, his arrest, and his death. Because that's why Jesus came. In Mark 10, 45, we read, uh, Jesus says these words. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. And that's why we celebrate Palm Sunday. Because Christ came to be a ransom for many. His hour had come. What evil men did, they unwittingly did to accomplish the plan of God. Just a couple of thoughts as we close an application for you. Trust in God's plans, even in the most difficult and challenging times of your life. I was thinking about this. You know, Christ, as he went through this week, was at the center of the will of God. At the center of the will of God. And Peter reflecting on this in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return, but continued entrusting himself. Trust God in the most difficult, challenging times of your life. Trust God. Jesus did it. And he calls us to do it. But then even further, give thanks to the Lord who works out all things according to, the, to his purpose for the good of his people. Jesus was absolutely in control of the situation as he entered Jerusalem. Because all that was going to take place was only accomplishing 
what God had already purposed for our redemption. And so you and I, we need to give thanks to God who works out all things for the good of his people and according to his purpose. And one more point. If Christ so willingly went to his death, so willingly went to his death, how willing are you to live for him? How willing are you to live for him? Worthwhile to consider, isn't it? Let me give you a moment to just quietly bow your heads and reflect on what you've heard this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the events of Palm Sunday and what it meant leading up to Good Friday. We're grateful, Lord. We worship you this morning. Thank you for your willingness to go straight into the lion's den, so to speak, so that we might be saved through your life. Help us, Lord, to be willing to live for you.